the story about my nine-year-old son who just started third grade he brought home a homework assignment one of those reading comprehension exercises and the little blurb that he had to read and then you know go and point out all the different answer a bunch of questions indicating that he actually understood what he read was an account and an age-appropriate account of september 11th of the attacks that took place that morning and it was kind of surreal as a parent to help him with that homework assignment, to, to guide him through the process of doing it and realize that this is where we're at. And 17 years later, we now have an entire generation of Americans for whom this is officially history. Not an experience, not something that they actually went through, not something that they have any sort of firsthand cognitive understanding of but something that they need to be taught because they weren't there. Uh, they don't understand it. And the world that that resulted from that event, the changes that took place in the aftermath of September 11th, created a world that for them is just normal. It's what they've always known. And that's interesting to me. And I want to talk about it with you here tonight on Closing Argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you tuning in. You can catch up on past shows by doing a search for Closing Argument in your iHeartRadio app. And our channel will pop up there for you with all our past episodes, interviews, clips, and what have you. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us this evening. And uh, we'll be taking throughout the show tonight your accounts of where you were. And uh, indeed, you know, if you're too young to have a where you were story, just kind of your I'm, I'm interested in your perception, you know, particularly from young people, your perception of 9-11 from uh, having it be something that w took place before your your formative years. So we'll take those calls as well. Brad Oman taking those calls and producing the show. So, yeah, when I reflect upon, you know, we, we, we are now at a point so many years later, you know, even for those of us who are old enough to, to remember it and who actually lived through it, that it's become normal for all of us, the post 9-11 world. Like the, there was a period of time after 9-11 where we talked about our perception in post and pre 9-11 terms. And we've all kind of moved past that now. Like there's very little recollection of pre 9-11 mentality or pre 9-11 thinking for better or worse. And I think it's worthwhile to kind of try to roll back the clock and roll back our memories and try to recall what our, our national perception was like, what our international perception was like, and what our personal perception was like prior to 9-11, there are many things that changed on that day. And there are a lot of things that didn't. A lot of things that I think some of us expected to change that have not changed at all. You know, when I think about my, my own personal where were you story, it's a little unconventional. It's actually, <laughs> it's actually almost not even worth repeating where I was at the time. I was asleep. I was asleep through the whole thing. At the time, I was you know quite young, and I was working a an afternoon job in Minneapolis, 
I think my schedule was something like 2 to 10. And I lived in River Falls, Wisconsin at the time uh, and was rooming with uh, many friends of mine who were of college age and were attending college. And we were doing things that college age people do. And my schedule was very accommodating to that, being 2 to 10. So I would get off work and I'd stay up until, oh, I don't know, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, go to sleep, wake up at noon, and then get ready, take a shower, get ready to go to work and go to work and start the whole thing all over again. It was an unproductive time in my life. I made a lot of money, though, because I had a job, so that was good. But uh, at any rate, I was following this pattern of behavior on September 11th, 2001. And so I woke up and, you know, it, it wasn't too rare for me to wake up and be the only person in my apartment just because of the time of day. And that's what happened. I woke up. I was all by myself. I had no idea what was going on. I got ready for work just like any other day, got into my car, and I started heading into Minneapolis from River Falls, about a 45-minute drive. And I turn on the radio, and I hear what at first sounds to me like some sort of historical retrospective on the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. You know, I'm hearing references to explosives and New York City and the World Trade Center and I very quickly decide I'm not interested in this. I don't need to hear about the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. So I turn the station. And I hear the exact same broadcast from the exact same people. And I go, well, that's strange. I could have sworn I just pushed the button that switches the station to something different. Let me push it again. Same commentary. Same discussion. Huh. You know, now that I think about it, there are certain details that they're expressing right now that don't sound anything like the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. This this might be happening right now. And then I look up into the sky as I'm driving down 94, and I, I see, which is really remarkable when you notice it, the conspicuous absence of aircraft, of contrails, of any indication that we live in the 21st century with aircraft and airplanes and air traffic. And that's when it hit me. I'm like, oh my God, this, this is real. This is happening right now. And as the information washed over me, my sense on that day and in the immediate days afterward was that this was the beginning of World War III. You know, when I talk about everything changed and a lot of things didn't, one of the things that didn't change is that we didn't respond the way I think we would have if this had happened, I don't know, 30, 40 years prior. There, there's, you know, when you compare 9-11 to, say, Pearl Harbor, very different response in terms of how we mobilized and how we reacted. You know, and that's something we can, can get into discussing if you like. But my, at, the, at the time... I was convinced we're going to war. It's going to be World War III. It's going to be all out. It's going to be insane. It's going to be do or die. And of course, you know, at that time, none of us knew if this was the end, like there were going to be more attacks. There was this sense of imminent danger at all times for weeks and months following 9-11. And it didn't really go away. And then every anniversary for several years afterwards. There was this sense of something's going to happen, something big is coming, there's going to be an attack. And it's in that context, that context of anticipation, that context of fear, 
that many of the things that did change and and many of the things that remain fundamentally altered about our consciousness and our culture and our politics uh, were fostered and formed. Let's talk to Ashley and Rosemont. Welcome to the program. Hi, Walter. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Um, So I just wanted to share uh, where I was. Uh, I'm not a Minnesotan by... um, I wasn't raised here. I was uh, raised in Boston, Massachusetts, and I was pretty young. Well, I don't know. It seems like a long time ago now, but (laughs) I was in ninth grade Mm -hmm. um, in my physics class, and uh, my my teacher had a telephone on his desk and that morning we were all sitting there. Everyone was groggy. It was an early morning class. And um, he got a call on this landline, which now even of itself sounds pretty archaic. Right. And uh, and he abruptly got up and left the room. Um, we were, you know, a bunch of kids who I'm surprised we didn't get into more trouble being in there alone for about 10, 15 minutes. And he came back into the room really quickly kind of stood there for a minute, walked back out of the room and brought in one of those old TVs, you know, on the yep. cart. Mm-hmm. I remember them well. <laughs> Big ones that, you know, get a roll in and yep. get over the threshold and everything. And um, and he turned it on. And I'm actually surprised we even had access to cable, to be honest with you, right. in school at that point. But um, we ended up watching that second tower fall. Um, but the, the thing that still hits me every time I think about it is he shared with us after... The fact, um, and this is Boston, obviously, so you're not, I mean, obviously you're far enough away from New York City, but you're a major hub on the East Coast. Right, right. And, uh, and his sister uh, worked in the North Tower, and she had called in sick that day. And it just gives me chills to think about it, because had she been there, she lost, you know, tons of colleagues. Mm-hmm. And it's just incredible to think about, you know, something as simple as calling in sick, Right. Could just change that completely. So thanks for letting me share that. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Appreciate you sharing your story with us. And uh, if you have your own account of where you were and stories related to 9-11, we'll take those throughout the evening tonight, 651-989-5855. Well, there are some weird stories about people who were supposed to be involved with 9-11 and weren't, like Seth MacFarlane, the guy who created Family Guy, American Dad, and whatnot, was supposed to be on one of the planes that crashed into the World Trade Center, but he went out drinking the night before, much like Walter, I'm sure. <laughs> and uh, his travel agent gave him a, the wrong time. Let's for just his plane. pause. Let's just pause to appreciate that the night before was a Monday, right? <laughs> and uh, and so he arrived late to the airport and got to his gate ten minutes late, and then uh, he realized an hour later that that was the plane that he was supposed to be on. And even right. more locally, uh, Minnesota wild head coach, Bruce Boudreaux was also supposed to be on one of the planes, uh, but he missed his flight too. So it, it, it happens and it's more present than I think we realize. I mean, if it's any perspective for you, I was 10 years old when nine 11 happened. So I was just a year older than your son. Right. If you can put that perspective into somebody witnessing it. Right. And it was a very weird experience because you like, I didn't understand what was happening. You know, you realize that it's something big, but you don't actually understand the magnitude of it. Like, sure. I go back today and watch media coverage from that day 
and it feels a lot weirder now oh, yeah. than it ever did as a 10-year-old. Oh, yeah. And I do remember, though, how every adult was, how different the adults acted, basically, Yeah. in that you could tell something was big, big was going on because of the way they were acting and how they were trying to explain and help us come to terms with it. I think uh, one of the most memorable things was, I, again, I was 10 years old. I was in fifth grade, I think. And I came home probably after school around 3.30 and would stay home for by myself for like half hour to an hour and a half before my parents got home from work. And that day there was a guy uh, replacing our front door. So it was me and this guy replacing our front door home alone in a small town in 2001, different times. Right. And I was, you know, half watching TV, half watching him put the new door on our house and he tells me and i'm sitting in the living room just watching him 20 feet away and he tells me you know i was about your age when jfk was assassinated and mm. that is something that i remember th- for the rest of my life and mm-hmm. you're gonna remember today just like i do that day and yeah, i do there there is and look i'm not old enough to remember jfk's assassination that took place long before i was born but i remember i grew up listening to grown-ups talk about it and when when people would talk about the assassination of JFK, they would refer to it as this turning point in the national consciousness where the way that everybody thought about just about everything changed after that event. And that can be said, obviously, of 9-11 in terms of how our perspective changed, our perception changed. The Overton window shifted massively this, this concept of the bounds of what people are willing to accept in public policy and in public discourse shifted massively as a result of 9-11. I want to get a little bit more into that when we return. We'll also continue to take your calls. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, dot com. Fearless. All is planning on hurting local businesses with their $15 an hour minimum wage. Listen live 6 to 9, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130 and 1035 FM. Reflecting on 9 11 this 17 years after the day. And in particular, I'm consider thumb through what changed in terms of our beliefs in terms of our ideas our fears our willingness to accept certain ideas that perhaps would have been unacceptable the day before the year before the decade before a lot of things changed after 9-11 other things didn't other things that you might have expected to change stayed the same oddly enough but we we definitely are a changed nation and we can continue to say that even this nearly two decades afterward. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855. Let's talk to Charles in Plymouth. Welcome to the program. Oh, Walter, how are you doing this time tonight? Good. Good. Um, I, I've been listening to all the, all the different talk stations yesterday and, and today mm-hmm. so far, and I'm still surprised just how surprised uh, everybody was when 9-11 happened. I had predicted 9-11 happening, uh, attacked on our soil uh, a year before uh, George W. was even president, and everybody thought I was nuts. 
So the day it happened, of course, I was out working, and a buddy of mine called me up, and he says, hey, bud, guess what? And I said, what? And he says, your prediction came true. I said, are you kidding me? Because I was out of out of range of radio or anything like that. And he goes, man, you got you got to turn on the news or something. So I finally got a truck that was working. And So what specifically, because I, I have to imagine you didn't necessarily predict two planes are going to crash into both World Trade Centers or the towers are going to collapse and it's going to be uh, oh, jihadist no, and all that. Spe- so what specifically? Not specifically, not specifically uh, that particular attack type thing, you know, mm-hmm. that specific but no, I knew we were going to be attacked on our soil uh-huh. by terrorists of some sort from people either from, you know, uh, that were generated or cultivated from uh, either Iraq or Afghanistan or in that definite, definite area uh, based on just the history of that area and our involvement and creation of the problems that we have had. I mean, I don't under, like I said, I don't understand how everybody goes, oh, we were such a surprise, and we were attacked, oh, my God. No, this was coming in a long time. I don't understand. It started with back when George Sr. Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't finish off back in the day because it was politically incorrect. Appreciate the call. I mean, appreciate I the thoughts, Charles. I, I think, when, you know, when people say they were surprised, and, you know, I don't want to speak for anybody else, but you know when when I considered the surprise because I you know I'm going to tell you I was surprised all right I mean I I'm not too shy to say it I I don't have any shame or any sense of shame or feel like I ought to to try to pretend as though I was like oh yeah this just another day Tuesday morning September 11th no it was shocking it was surprising it was horrifying it was unsettling and I think a large part of the reason why is because prior to 9-11, one of, one of the, the perceptions that changed, one of the ways we thought about ourselves that changed, is prior to 9-11, Americans on the whole largely had the sense that we were invulnerable. We largely had the sense that something like this could not happen to us. And that idea was fostered by a kind of public mythology that had been built up on purpose by our institutions, particularly by the government and also by Hollywood. This sense that, you know, we we have the best people on the job. We have the best minds set to the task of protecting the soil of the United States. Nothing can possibly get through. We've got radar. We've got sonar nets. We've got sensors. We've got satellites. We've got planes in the sky. We've got soldiers ready to go. You know, there's no way that anybody could ever successfully attack the United States of America. And I think that sense of invulnerability created a kind of disbelief that something like this could happen which was directly responsible for the conspiracy theories that followed. The the premise upon which many of the conspiracy theories coming out of 9-11 were based or were built was this notion of American invulnerability. It was, well, how there's no way this could possibly happen unless the government was complicit because of all the ways that we have of protecting ourselves. How could the system fail, right? was kind of the sense of how how could this possibly take place unless it was intentional, unless there was a stand-down order given, unless George W. Bush was in on it, right? And there was, a, there was a degree to which that narrative felt plausible 
and I speak firsthand here, like in the moment, in those immediate years after 9-11, that idea seemed plausible just on in the sense that you didn't want to believe that America could be that vulnerable. You didn't want to believe that something like this could happen. It was one of those those deals where the truth was so shocking and unsettling and and put and left you in a place of such discomfort that you wanted you the the lie of the conspiracy theory was more comfortable. The idea that there was some sort of sense that could be made out of it was attractive to a lot of people. And I think the lesson, one of the many lessons that we can draw out of our collective 9-11 experience is that much of security, much, whether, whether you're talking about national security or your, your home's security, personal security, much of security is an illusion. Much of security is just steps that you take in order to convey a sense of peace of mind in order to give yourself a sense that everything's okay, that nothing bad can happen to you. But when, if you were really objective about it, if you really took a, a long, cold, hard look at the vulnerabilities of, you know, whatever it is that you're examining, you know, your workplace, your home, the nation itself, if you actually take an itemized look, a, a, a professional look at the different security vulnerabilities that exist, they are ample, they are profound, and I think most importantly, they're largely insurmountable. There is no such thing as perfect security, right? Like this, this idea that we're going to pass a law, we're going to implement a program, we're going to create a department, we're going to establish a bureaucracy, that, and, and that somehow, some way, we're going to achieve perfect safeness is a very dangerous idea to our liberties. And it's also foolhardy in terms of, you know, chasing after a mirage of something that can never potentially or never possibly be achieved. It's, it's a futile objective. Not that we shouldn't try to do everything in our power to make ourselves as safe as possible, but those last two words as possible are critical. They're key they're, they're necessary. They have to be a, a primary context in which we decide what we're going to do and, and as we weigh the cost-benefit analysis. We'll continue to take your calls when we return. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Atson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. There was some news and stuff that happened today. We'll get into talking about that shortly, but we wanted to start off this evening reflecting upon September 11th, the 17th anniversary thereof, and taking your phone calls regarding where you were and your reflections on what has changed. Closing argument, my name's Walter Atson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, streaming com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. It's great having you with us. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. Brad Omland takes those calls and produces the show. Let's talk to Jean in Shakopee. Thanks for holding. Hi, thank you for having me on. Yep. Uh, so we just wanted to say we, um, my husband and I got home from uh, work that day after uh, watching it on TV and, and stuff, uh, and we had two boys at home that come home after school. They were 11 and 14 at the time, and 
our 11-year-old knew that we were planning on going to Orlando, Florida during MEA break and conferences in October, which would only be about a month afterwards. Mm -hmm. And we're watching the news and um, discussing it all. And he looked at me and he said, Mom, is there any way that we can get to Orlando other than a plane? Wow. And I had to assure him, you know, I said, I bought the tickets in June. You know, we are going. Everything's planned. And to try to be a parent and uh, and reassure him that it would be safe yeah. um, was very hard. Um, but it was just trying to get him to feel comfortable right. that it would even probably be safer when we were going than the day that it happened. Right, right. Um, and so it was just he wanted to know if there was any other way of going. And I said, well, we can, you know, take a train, we can take the car, you know, we right. can, you know, there are other modes, but I said, I already have this planned and bought and paid for. Mm -hmm. um, and he said, I said, you could, you know, and I, I just jokingly tried to lighten the subject. And I said, you could start walking and in a month you might be there and we'll pick you up along the way, you know, in the rental <laughs> car. Um, you know, just to, you know, try to make it a I don't know, a kid-friendly conversation, I guess, right, right, right. at the end um, and stuff. So I'm sure that I don't know if he remembers it or not, but... Um, oh, I'm sure he does. I, I'm sure if, you know, he'd go back in the memory, yeah. it probably would be there on, on having that discussion that evening. But um, it was, yeah, just trying to reassure the kids that, you know, we are safe. Yeah. But, um, you know, just uh, just a hard time. I appreciate the story. I appreciate you uh, holding in order to share it with us, Gene. And, you know, that's kind of indicative of kind of collectively, nationally, how we all, in a very real way, lost our innocence on 9-11. And when I, when I talk about the illusion of security, much of security in terms of how it's implemented, I mean, you look at TSA, right, as, as kind of a consummate example. A lot of it is what you would call security theater, right, where the things that are done in the name of security, the, the actual effect that they have on the likelihood of something bad happening are you know, questionable in many cases. But the purpose that it serves is to create the sense of safety and the sense of safety does have a security value, right? Because one of, one of the worst things that can happen from a security perspective is panic distrust, a lack of confidence to, to, to have people in, in a situation where they fear as though something bad is going to happen is an environment where worse things can happen. And so, you know, much of what is done in the name of security and safety is done in order to affect a sense of calm affect a sense of safety and order and everything's under control. And so when something bad happens like 9-11, it shatters that illusion and it leaves us in a place where we can have one of two reactions, broadly speaking, one of which is pretty healthy, the other of which is not. The healthy reaction is to realize, okay, bad things happen. Bad things happen. There are certain things that can be done to try to mitigate the possibility of those things happening. There are certain reactions that we can take objectively and rationally in order to respond to the bad things that happen. But we have to accept that part of living in a world where there are other human beings with varying motives 
is the realization that eventually something bad is going to happen. And then forming our our institutions and our laws in such a way as to minimize risk to the greatest extent possible, but also to to not sacrifice the purpose of the law in the first place. The purpose of the law fundamentally is not to keep us safe. It's not. It's not to keep us secure. It's to protect our rights. That's why the law exists. That's why government itself exists. That's its only moral purpose is to protect our rights. And so to the extent that in the name of security, it starts to take actions which violate that fundamental first purpose, that one reason why it even exists in the first place, we've crossed a line by allowing that. And that's the unhealthy reaction of something simply must be done. I don't care what it is. It just has to be done. It has to be done now because I'm scared and I need to feel safe again and I need to re-erect that illusion of security, that sense of safety. Somebody please tell me everything's going to be okay. There's a piece that speaks to this over at uh, Mises.org. Jeff Deist writes, The cliche is true. September 11th, 2001 represents a defining American moment. Generation X and millennials suddenly had their own day of infamy, just as their parents and grandparents had Pearl Harbor and the Kennedy assassination. 9-11 marked the end of a relatively untroubled time in the U.S. following the 1980s and 90s and the beginning of a dark turn that continues to this day. Optimism, an enduring feature of the American psyche, suddenly was in short supply. Lives were lost along with innocence, but the innocence lost that day had less to do with terrorism or even the threat of terrorism than it did with what we all knew was coming, an exponential rise in the size and scope of the American state. The specter of growing state power frightened even those eager to endorse it, as most Americans were in the days following. For libertarians, 9-11 was especially troubling because of the intense public demand for Congress and the Bush administration to do something whether that something was rational, just, or even served American interests, was almost beside the point. The people wanted blood. And after the images of bodies jumping from the Twin Towers, who can blame the politicians in D.C. for obliging them? If there were no atheists in foxholes, there were very few libertarians after terrorist attacks. Our uneasy job was to counsel reason and restraint, even if that meant shouting into a wind tunnel. The entire U.S. national security apparatus, a trillion-dollar enterprise extending far beyond the Pentagon and alphabet soup intelligence agencies like the CIA and NSA, had failed utterly in its ostensible mission. All the airport security, nuclear missiles, air defense command centers, bombers, fighter jets, aircraft carriers, destroyers, spooks, spies, analysts, and supercomputers could not protect a single American from a small group of middle-class Saudi kids with box cutters and a few hours of Cessna training. So what should have been a profoundly embarrassing and soul-searching moment for the U.S. national security state became an exercise in chest-thumping. War room sessions at the White House made for good TV optics, but humility rather than hubris was in order. The question of what to do could not be answered without understanding what went wrong and what motivated the perpetrators. But not a single federal employee was fired because of 9-11, at least not so far as Senator Rand Paul can tell. Instead, both Congress and the Bush 43 administration reacted predictably to 9-11 and poured it on. We will spend whatever it takes, do whatever it takes, and go wherever it takes to get the people who did this. Sixteen years later, 
The war on terror has yielded hundreds of thousands of dead and injured Americans, Iraqis, and Afghans. Ongoing intractable wars disguised as nation-building. The Patriot Act, illegal executive actions, trillions in new federal debt, vastly increased federal surveillance powers, rubber-stamped FISA court warrants, TSA at the airports, a useless Department of Homeland Security, overflowing VA hospitals, and increasingly militarized police here at home. More importantly, it has yielded a distressing complacency toward grotesque federal power. It has not yielded peace or liberty or security. But liberty versus security was never the choice. That from Jeff Deist, writing at the Mises Institute, Mises.org. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, Sean Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, 651-989-5855. The number to join us. We've been reflecting upon 9-11 this hour. Let's talk to Mike in Jordan. Thanks for holding. Yeah, so I was on my way to work. Um, I heard, you know, I was listening to one of the other radio stations. I heard that the Tower of Hours got hit. Uh, that night I was scheduled to, uh, to drill, uh, go down and pick up aerial delivery stuff, airdrops from uh, for that Air Force Reserves that I was in. Mm-hmm. I had my uniform in my car. We'll go after work. And, uh, I pulled over right in front of right in front of Winter Park, right there in front of a Viking Stream, Viking Camp, and and uh, I called my, I called my boss at the Air Force and I said, "Look, I got my uniform. What do you what do you want me to do?" And you know, that's that's my only memory of really for the most part. You were ready to go. I was ready. I was ready to go. I mean, I I'd already by that time I'd already been. Uh, I joined the military in 1986. Yeah. Spent four years active duty in the, in the Navy, and uh, you know, in the in the heart the heart of the end of the Cold War, and uh, so I, I you know I was already I was in the reserves at the time. Right. So I was I was ready to go. You know. Did uh, Did you ever end up getting activated as part of the reserves after that? Six months. Six months later, we uh, we hit the ground on uh, June sixth of uh, two thousand two in uh, Germany. We were processing uh, processing uh, army army uh, machinery mm-hmm. and uh, equipment in and out of uh, in and out of uh, Rhein-Main, Germany, or Frankfurt, Germany, uh, into uh, into Afghanistan, straight through. Well, we appreciate your service. Appreciate you calling in to share your story with us, Mike. Let's talk to Tim in Prior Lake. Welcome to the program. Hey, Walter. Uh, I was just noticing, I remember uh, 9-11 back right after it happened, all the American flags. Everyone had them on their cars yeah. in front of their house. Yeah. And... Now look, I mean, seventeen years later, it's, yeah, it just it's kind of shocking. I don't know it's the age of the people, you know, that were young then or what. Mm-hmm. It's a, just observation, basically. Yeah, that sense of togetherness didn't last very long, did it? It didn't. And that's kind of. 
I appreciate the call, Tim. Appreciate the insight. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, if we're being honest, this the sense of solidarity after a major national tragedy like that, it's doomed to fail. Like on a long enough timeline, it's gonna collapse because the things which divided us before are gonna continue to divide us after. That what we are unified by was our shock, our fear, our 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 conviction to do something. You know, I, I probably if you pulled ten different people, they probably couldn't tell you exactly what it was. But our conviction to do something, to be strong, to stay vigilant. You know, we had this this sentiment of reaction. But once it came time to actually decide what that was going to be, how we were actually going to proceed, going out of September 11th. That's where the old ideological divisions uh, start to resurface once again. Well, and that's not to say that the consequences of those decisions aren't contributing to the political environment today. Like, I don't think it's a coincidence that we went to war in Afghanistan and now there's an opioid crisis in the country. <laughs> and, you know, people, you look back on Vietnam and the U.S., diplomatically and militarily was involved in Vietnam for 20 years from 1955 to 1975 and think of the social divide that that caused Mm -hmm. we've been in Afghanistan now for 17 years 16 Mm -hmm. years and we are at an extremely high point of social division again and it seems that we've learned just the people who were born from 1955 to 1975 who grew up with Vietnam being a thing, like kids are growing up now with just the war on terror being a thing, they were willing to send their kids to fight the war on terror, right. an endless war on terror, right. after growing up in the era of Vietnam. It's it's shocking that we don't learn from history in those ways, and that we don't see the same way that, even though it may not be as uh, prescient is the word, you know, there was there's no draft now. But there's, it's still a high time of social division, and I think that's a major factor in it. There's definitely a a rhyme to the, these eras in our history, uh, a repeating of circumstance that has taken place. That said, one of the key differences between then and now is 9-11 itself, the attack on our soil, the the downing of the Twin Towers, and the sense that that created in all of us of fear and and the and a desire, a rational desire, righteous indignation, a rational desire for vengeance for somebody to pay for what had been done, and that set the stage though for uh, ideas that should not have been embraced and that to a large extent continue to be embraced uh, that that generalize people groups and that rush to quick and easy solutions to problems that are actually really complicated and require a fair amount of deliberation uh, and intention and, and in terms of how we approach them and uh, there's much that still needs to be learned even almost two decades later Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. We'll be back with some news on the other side of the break. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Broadcasting on AM. Speaking of the illusion of security, Minneapolis is reeling from some gun violence over the weekend. You know, I'm used to seeing these kinds of stories coming out of Chicago 
It's kind of like a weekly thing of, oh, 30 more people were shot in Chicago this weekend. Uh, They don't know what they're going to do about it. Probably uh, pass some more gun restrictions because that's worked well so far. Well, now it's here in Minneapolis. have a story from over the weekend. Ten people killed or ten people shot over the weekend. Four of them were killed. And uh, Mayor Jacob Fry has a plan to say some things and wring his hands and make us all feel better. So my guess is that he didn't say, well, guns are all right. Yeah, right. <laughs> you would be correct, sir. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM, streaming at com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you tuning in. Contribute at 651-989-5855. Brad Omland takes those calls and produces the show from the Star Tribune. Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Fry on Monday vowed to redouble efforts to curb shootings and other violent crimes seeking to calm the city still reeling from an exceptionally bloody weekend. I I always love the vows to redouble efforts, you know? Like, that's that's like out of, like, an old 1930s serial or like Star Wars. Redouble your efforts to secure. You're like, get out of here. It's like the discount double check. Yeah, right. Uh, is there any? Is there anything more worthless than a politician redoubling his efforts? Right. It's unacceptable, Fry said. Gun violence is one of the most insidious issues we have confronting our country, and our response as a city is going to be swift and strong. Okay. I I would love to know what that's going to be. His comments came as police scrambled to ward off any retaliatory violence after a weekend in which 10 people were shot, four of them fatally. Most of the shootings occurred over a 48-hour stretch on Friday and Saturday, but the violence spilled into Sunday when a shootout broke out between three men in a corner store in the 2600 block of Emerson Avenue North, leaving two dead. A 19-year-old is jailed awaiting charges. That shooting, along with the Friday slaying of 32-year-old Laban Muhammad Abduli in the Cedar Riverside neighborhood, are thought to be gang-related, Fry said. Also on Friday, Stephen Fields, 42, was found fatally shot multiple times behind a bar in the 2000 block of Washington Avenue North. Vernal Fields said Monday that his son, who was born and raised in Minneapolis and worked at a hotel, was outside the bar smoking a cigarette when an altercation inside spilled outside. They killed my son, the elder field said. My son is not a violent person. He's not into that. The recent bloodshed comes as the department tries to repair its image, the police department, in some neighborhoods after a string of controversial incidents, most recently the June shooting death of Thurman Blevins by two Minneapolis police officers. While the officers involved were not charged, the incident led to calls for reforms. Now, let me just pause for a moment to point out something that you know may be sensitive this soon after these fatal shootings in Minneapolis, but it needs to be said because it's true. It's true, and it's apropos. When Black Lives Matter and people sympathetic to Black Lives Matter say things like abolish the police or we should police our own communities, don't call the cops, we'll take care of it ourselves, this is what taking care of it yourself looks like. This is what people policing their own community look like. Gang violence. That's what it is. What do you think they're shooting each other for, right? There's perceived transgressions that have taken place. There's conflict. 
And they're certainly not turning to the law to settle it, right? They're taking it into their own hands. It's anarchy. This is what it looks like. So is this, my question for the Black Lives Matter Matters folks would be, is this your preferred alternative to the police? I'd be interested in hearing from folks on that. Well, not to speak for Jamar, but I know that usually when things like that happens, he's posting about how black people need to stop shooting each other. Well, okay. I agreed. So I I would say what you, that... What, what do you do when they don't stop? Sure. Like, what's, what's, what's your plan B? Plan A of, hey, let's not shoot each other. I approve of that plan. But what do you do when they actually start doing it? Like, what's your reaction going to be? Sans police, sans government, you know, and th- that's a question that needs to be answered. If, if if your only plan is abolish the police and you have nothing beyond that, it's hard for me to take you seriously. Continuing at the Star Tribune. While officers involved were not charged, the incident, the Blevins shooting, led to calls for reforms. Overall, no single idea will erase gun violence, but we can't be shy about attacking it head on, Mayor Fry said. Fry singled out the successes of Next Step, a hospital bedside intervention program, and Project Life, a cousin of the ceasefire anti-violence program that has been credited with reducing violent crime in some U.S. cities. The program, formerly known as GVI, or Group Violence Intervention, attempts to prevent violence by focusing on the small subset of individuals and gangs who disproportionately drive it. And they don't go into detail as to what this focusing entails and, you know, how it actually results in a reduction of gun violence. But, you know, apparently it's a program of some kind. I imagine it costs money. And that's Mayor Fry's that that's his his doubling down, his redoubling of his efforts and his getting strong and serious in response to this. So hopefully it works. I mean, you know, I I don't want to. I don't want to wish him ill. I I hope he does trip upon some mysterious way to somehow magically get rid of the gun violence without actually enforcing the law and supporting his own police department and, you know, holding people accountable for their actions. Let's talk to Mike in Farmington. Welcome to the call or to the show. Thanks for taking my call, Walter. Yep. Um, Do you you think it's really, as as it's characterized in the media, gun violence. I mean, is it really just as simple as eliminating guns? Because that, that's, we hear that from the left so often. If we just eliminate the gun, then this will all go away or greatly be reduced. Yeah, I mean, I the, the problem with that notion is, one, physically, how do you do it, right? Like, I don't have the numbers at hand, but the number of guns that are out there in society are in the in the tens, if not hundreds of millions, probably the hundreds of millions. There's probably more guns than there are people in this country. And yeah, so another theory about this, though, is uh, with Obama getting back into the fray again with the midterms coming up. And I, I watched this go on during this term, but it seemed like at every point along the way. Whenever there was an opportunity to foment racism and divisiveness and hatred, mm-hmm. they seem to, to be right in there. And my, my theory is it's a political calculation, because if you can appeal to that, the community 
that the police are against you right. and they're out to get you, then they can keep that that voter base that, hey, we're going to take care of you, we're looking out for you. And you know, one gentleman made the comment, he said, it's like we, we threw the country right back into the 60s. Look, I, and I appreciate the call as always, Mike. You know, I I don't want to pretend as though there aren't legitimate criticisms of the police. And one of my biggest gripes with Black Lives Matter and related organizations and people is that they they end up discrediting what legitimate criticism there is out there of not the police specifically but including the police specifically and the overall criminal justice system. Like there are aspects of the criminal justice system that we should be taking a look at. We should be looking to affect justice in ways that are not currently being affected. The problem is we can't even begin to have a productive conversation along those lines, which is going to require, you know, it, it can't be a partisan effort. It has to be bipartisan. This is why I appreciate Mark Hazy, who's running for Hennepin County Commissioner right now, because he's a guy who understands, despite the fact that he's a Democrat and I'm not, right? Despite the fact that me and him probably disagree on 80% of, of issues overall, when it comes to this question of criminal justice and, and the concept of justice as such, he recognizes that you're not going to be able to accomplish anything of significance in terms of reforming the criminal justice system without it being a bipartisan effort, without getting everybody around the table. And you're not going to be able to do that so long as you're, you conflate legitimate criticisms of the system with absurd calls for non-solutions that are never going to happen. Here's an example. This is also from the Star Tribune. Activists on Monday called for several changes with the Metro Transit Police Force weeks after a Minneapolis woman was handcuffed and wrestled to the ground by officers in an incident that was widely shared on social media. Kenya Chandler, who is black, was arrested August 21, prompting activists to complain that non-white transit passengers are more frequently harassed by Metro Transit Police, particularly during fare checks on light rail trains. And here's, here's, here's my example for you. Here's, this is... This is quintessential Black Lives Matter nonsense. Metro Transit has no interest in the safety of people of color, said Henry Pan of the Twin Cities Transit Writers Union and Advocacy Group. Police have no place on public transit. Police have no place on public transit? Listen, buddy, like once you say that, and I say this, like I say, as a potential ally on broader criminal justice issues, once you throw police have no place on public transit out there in the ether for public consideration, forget about it. Forget about anything else you have to say. You have established that you're a moron. You have established that you are non-serious. You have established that you are not a credible individual. And through association, even though you know arguments... Uh, by association or guilt by association is a fallacious consideration. It's nonetheless effective in the discourse, right? It's effective persuasively, rhetorically. Through association, anybody who's with you and any cause that you support is also going to be viewed as incredible, as not worthwhile. The, 
And, and, you know, these voices that are always, they're always the loudest. They're always the ones who get quoted in the newspaper. They're always the ones who get in front of the cameras and who get microphones shoved in their faces. These voices who have the most absurd things to say and prescribe when it comes to notions of, of, of criminal justice and, you know, the police brutality and the, the role of police in society, they are ruining it for the rest of us. And by the rest of us, I mean those out here of either political persuasion, of either political party, who want to have a good faith, productive, meaningful conversation moving forward as to what sort of things need to change in criminal justice. Closing argument, my name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, The Joe Pack. Along with gun violence, there were 10 shootings in Minneapolis over the weekend, resulting in four fatalities. You can add to the list of things that uh, Mayor Jacob Fry says he's going to do something about this increasingly problematic homeless camp that has emerged in town off of East Franklin Avenue. And uh, there's been a death now. There's been a death now at this camp. And uh, it has prompted more hand-wringing and more promises of doing something undefined in response. And it's interesting because as we read this piece at the Star Tribune, about the death of this young woman, which of course is tragic, and the the circumstances under which it happened, the context in which it occurred, and the the state of this homeless camp that has developed, it seems really obvious what that the that the problem is getting worse because of the attention that it's being given. Like all of this attention is being given to this camp. Nothing's being done about it. Well, but a lot of attention is being brought to it, and a lot of promises are being made about what might come in terms of free stuff, free housing, free medical care, you know, free food, free supplies, free needles, you know, all this free things that are going to be. And amazingly, it's almost as if it's almost as if the word has gotten out that hey, line up, set up your tent, so a bailout is coming. There's going to be handouts. I, I don't know. I mean, it seems likely to me that there might be some correlation to the amount of publicity that this homeless camp has gotten, the types of promises and statements that have been made from public officials such as Mayor Jacob Fry, and the increased horrendous conditions that are apparently evident there. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855. A young woman living at the homeless encampment in South Minneapolis died Saturday from complications resulting from an asthma attack, raising fresh alarms over the health and safety of approximately 300 people living at the large and growing site. Uh, Alyssa Rose Skip of the Day, 26, was found barely conscious and not breathing last week near the entrance to the camp at East Franklin Avenue and 16th Avenue South, relatives said. She was rushed to Hennepin County Medical Center, where she died on Saturday. Family members and residents of the camp said Skip in the Day suffered from chronic asthma and did not have her emergency inhaler at the time of the asthma attack. She was homeless and had been living at the encampment for several weeks, they said. The Hennepin County Medical Examiner's Office said Tuesday that her death remains under investigation. This is a tragic event that is painful for that entire community, said Dr. Anthony Staley, chief executive of the Native American Community Clinic on East Franklin Avenue. It really highlights the critical nature of conditions at the camp and the urgent need for on-site medical care. 
The growing tent city has alarmed local health officials and American Indian leaders who have been scrambling to find emergency shelter and medical care for the growing number of people arriving at the site. Again, growing number of people arriving. The word is out. People are coming. Located on a narrow strip of land along Hiawatha and East Franklin Avenues near the Little Earth Housing Project. Despite an intensive outreach effort by a coalition of city, county, and American Indian agencies, some residents with chronic illnesses and serious infections are still going without basic medical care. Efforts to bring in a mobile health unit have been held up by regulatory restrictions and liability concerns, say local officials and outreach workers. Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Fry had pledged to find housing for everyone by the end of September. Though that deadline is now seen by many Indian agencies as unrealistic, given the swelling numbers of people arriving at the site. The encampment, which tent dwellers have called the Wall of the Forgotten Natives, because it borders a highway sound wall and primarily consists of American Indians, has roughly quadrupled in size over the past month. Residents say they are seeking safety in numbers as opposed to sleeping alone in various spots across the city, as well as access to food, clothing, and social services. The camp now has 142 tents, according to a count Tuesday by the Minneapolis Police Department. The crowded nature of the encampment, many of the tents are less than a foot apart, has health officials worried about the spread of infectious and communicable diseases. They have recorded several cases of a drug-resilient bacterial infection, and they go into the details about the different uh, medical phenomena that are present in this camp. We need rotating shifts of nurses out there on a regular basis, said uh, Margarita Ortega, a volunteer with Natives Against Heroin, a street outreach group that has been a visible force at the encampment. This death could and should have been prevented, she said. Skipping the day died less than a day after Mayor Fry met with representatives of the American Indian community, including directors of several nonprofits and leaders of the Red Lake and Leech Lake tribes to discuss a plan for moving people to safer housing. There was general agreement at the meeting that the current location is not suitable, but that authorities should not try to disperse residents until plans for safer housing are in place. Still, the meeting was combative at times with several Indian leaders expressing frustration over the absence of a clear plan and the need to address urgent health concerns. How many more of our relatives, this is the part, this is the, the, the quote in the story that tweaks me just a little bit. How many more of our relatives are going to die before we get them assistance? James Cross, founder of Natives Against Heroin, asked a state health department official at the meeting. Blood is on your hands. Excuse me, but I I could have sworn I heard you say your relatives, right? So my immediate follow-up question to you would be, where have you been? What? Because here's the thing. Clearly, I, I don't know your situation, but you're obviously doing well enough that you have spare time to attend community meetings about homeless camps in Minneapolis, right? So you're doing okay. You're 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 sustaining yourself. If it's truly your relatives who you're concerned about, what are you doing to help them? How is it? Early in the story, they talk about this gal who died. And they say that her family, they cite her family talking about her situation. Nowhere in there is there any mention of or consideration of why she was in this camp. Like, if she had family who was concerned about her, what was she doing roaming around a a disease-infested 
drug-infested homeless camp in the middle of Minneapolis. Is I, Okay, so here's, here's, here's my bottom line question for you. If you're going to submit to me that it's not your responsibility as the relative, as the family member, to take care of your own, how do you then turn around and make the argument that it's somehow mine? That it's somehow the city of Minneapolis is, that it's somehow the state of Minnesota's or what whoever it is that you're appealing to to please come and do something on behalf of my relatives. It, th- this is this is one of the leaps of logic that I've never been able to comprehend. How something is not, can can not be your responsibility, but somehow magically becomes somebody else's. Whether you're talking about your own needs, your own housing, your own health care. You know, the, the, the things you need in order to sustain your own life or whether you're talking about somebody else, a third party, the broader community, the poor in the abstract. It's it's not their responsibility to take care of themselves. It's not your responsibility to be charitable to them. But somehow it's everybody else's responsibility to somehow take care of it. It's a leap of logic that I've never been able to to quite comprehend. And look, I'll allow for the possibility that there are details that are excluded from this article. You know, perhaps there is some some clarifying information that would make these comments less abrasive. But look, there there are there's no doubt in my mind that a number of bad decisions were made by a lot of people before any of them got to the place where they're at here. Not only by them, the the people who are residents of this homeless camp but also the people around them in their lives in terms of enabling, in terms of fostering worldviews that allow them to project their responsibilities onto others. And we're we're not going to help them by continuing to facilitate that, by just providing a better and more pervasive handout. The, The causes of these problems, the root causes the behavioral causes, the attitude causes need to be addressed in order for for people to truly be saved from the circumstance that they find themselves in. Closing argument, my name is Walter Edson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, closing argument, my name is Walter Edson. Streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app, we're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you being with us. You can join us at 651-989-5855. Brad Omland takes those calls and produces the show. From the Star Tribune, a video surfaced online Tuesday that shows the police chief of Madison Lake, Minnesota, population 1017, complaining about non-English speakers at Yellowstone Park this summer, apparently while on vacation. Chief Daniel Bundy turned on his cell phone camera while sitting with others at a national park and, after telling his viewers where he was, turned the camera around to catch bits of the conversations going on around him. (laughs) All I hear is blah, 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 (laughs) blah. I'm reading it as it's written in the Star Trek. All I hear is blah, 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 he said. He tips his head forward a few times to show the veteran baseball cap he's wearing before signing off with, Wake up, America! Bundy didn't respond to a phone call or email Tuesday, but the Madison Lake City Commissioner or City Administrator told the Mankato TV station that he spoke with Bundy and didn't want to pursue the issue any further. 
Administrator Kurt Kephart added that the anonymous tipster who sent the video to the Madison Lake City Hall and uh, KEYC in Mankato should be cautious before making judgments about Bundy. Be very cautious before we call people racist, Kephart told the TV station. Kephart didn't return a phone call Tuesday. So, yeah, at, this is one of those stories where every part of it is kind of dumb. Like, every aspect of it is stupid. It's the video is dumb. The fact that he just that at, in his role as a, a police chief, he thought it was kosher. He thought it was going to go off like hotcakes if he got on the Internet and posted a video about how he doesn't like people speaking other languages. That was dumb. It was a dumb professional decision. The content of the video is kind of stupid. Wake up, America. Wake up to what? The fact that other people exist, that there are other languages in the world, that we live in a place where I wake up and order Rosetta Stone. Like, what is your what's the the advice you're actually offering here? Okay, so the message is dumb. Deciding to make the video is dumb. But but to get so wound up about it that you try to make it an issue, you complain to City Hall, you send it in to to the TV station, and now we're talking about it's being printed on the Star Tribune. Also pretty stupid. This is a non-issue, a non-incident. The incident, the newsworthy fact is that it's a newsworthy, it's considered a newsworthy event. We're talking about it because it was reported. That's really why we're talking about it. More than, more than the fact that it happened, it's the fact that it's being reported that is of interest to me. And then lastly, the city administrator trying to pretend as though there wasn't some sort of inappropriate bias involved in the production because what what did he possibly mean when he gets up there and says all i hear is blah 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 wake up america like what's the non-racist interpretation of that video i i don't know i also don't care this, this is to me this is a point that i think we need to make more often here on the program it's taken at face value that if you can demonstrate that somebody's racist, you've got them, right? Like if you can demonstrate that somebody has said something that's racist or thought something that's racist or done something that's racist, then that's just the end of them. We get to cancel them. We get to just not consider them part of the human race moving forward or part of decent society moving forward because they've said, thought, or done something racist. This is a stupid notion. Racism is something that has always existed and to one degree or another always will exist. It's not something we should embrace. It's not something we should condone. It's not something we should become comfortable with. But it's also not a real insidious problem that needs to be rooted out with the angst and the gnashing of teeth that is often directed at it. Yeah, I put it this way. When I encounter somebody, if I encounter somebody who thinks less of me on account of the color of my skin or any other completely irrelevant demographic factor or physical superficial characteristic, if I encounter that person, how, how am I victimized by them? What have they deprived me of to which I am entitled? Where, where do we come up with this notion that people deserve to be thought of a certain way or deserve to not be offended? Or, or to be regarded as uh, uh, as anything whatsoever. It's a it's a particular type 
of tyranny, actually. You know, the, the annexation of the mind is the, is the way that I refer to it, where you, you insist that other people think of you the way you want them to think of you. But it is, I, I agree with you on the notion that just because somebody said something racist is not in itself a news story. But I think this is a news story because he is an authority figure in the town. That's fair. Like, racism combined with authority is fascism. So how do you expect a police officer to properly interact with the public in a small southern Minnesota town, which I would imagine has a, a not a fair, but a noticeable population of, of Hispanics or sure, people sure. of other cultures who come into the city at least seasonally and work? And, uh, you know, if something goes down, how do you expect him to interact with them appropriately, especially given the communication barrier? So... But I think that along those lines, it would be appropriate to say, all right, let's keep let's it's appropriate for your antenna to go up. Right. And for you to be like, all right, this is something we need to be aware of and we need to keep an eye out on. We need to we need to consider in our evaluation of specific behaviors that this guy and his department engage in. But the notion that the somebody said something that could be interpreted to be biased or racist therefore you know we just throw out everything we throw out all babies with all the bathwater. There, there's a we've gotten to a point in our culture and in our discourse where it's impossible to have a measured reaction to anything having to do with race or racism that there's basically one of two reactions that people have which is ignoring it pretending it doesn't exist or acting as though it's completely meaningless or on the other hand, acting as though it is the single most important thing in the world, that everything, all other consideration, all other conversation must come to a screeching halt so that we can focus like a laser on race and racism. And both of those reactions are dumb. The truth is in between the two. Racism is something that is real. It is something that is present. It is something that should be rejected. But it's it's it doesn't have... Racism only has power to the extent, and Brad's point goes to this, racism's power is only present where it's tied to state authority or to the extent that somebody, you know, violates your rights in a criminal manner. The, the fact that a person exists with racist beliefs is not a violation of you. It's only when they have the capacity to violate your rights that it becomes a violation that's that should be actionable in an institutional sense and in this sense it should be so what action would you prescribe if not just firing him or severely censoring him i would imagine that the city kind of knows that they have their hands tied because of police unions mm -hmm. but at least try to say hey we're sorry and we're going to engage in some sort of training like the officers are going to go through i mean it would admittedly it would take years of training and immersion to get them to communicate like in a way that a native speaker would communicate with someone else mm -hmm. and effectively communicate with them in a time of tra of crisis and tragedy but i think it would do any like just regardless of you're a police officer or not it it would it does anybody good to learn it to learn a second language even if you don't speak it that well, because it helps you understand. So you think they should be required to learn 
Spanish. I think that they should make the effort, especially given the demographics of Southern Minnesota and people who that they who they may be interacting with more often. And I think that they should work to gain the trust of uh, Hispanic communities when they are in the city, because that's like you look at things like Minneapolis and how, you know, we want police to not exist in Minneapolis. It's because there was never that bridge. They didn't bridge that gap in culture, in society. It was us. It was almost us versus them. And the police officer's comments to make that gap wider. There, I I can see what you're saying in terms of in both the if the case of Minneapolis and potentially the the city in southern Minnesota, the importance of having kind of that old Andy Griffith style the guy next the guy who actually is part of the community who's in in charge of enforcing the laws. There's definitely value in that. The I think the underlying issue, though, you know, rather than trying to purge people of their biases and prejudices through in intensive training, I think the real solution to the problem, to the extent there is a problem, is, as we've pointed out many times before, taking away the state's authority, whittling down the number of laws, right? Like, the, give, getting rid of the premises or the the uh, prerequisites by which people can I- engage in uh, invasive actions with people informed by their biases you know remove those precursors and there'll be less opportunity for bias to actually be a problem in the enforcement of law twincitiesnewstalk.com you know, we like to think of ourselves as being enlightened and modern and forward-thinking and, you know, perhaps even some listening, progressive. You know, we're people of the future. We've come such a long way from the past. But, you know, in a lot of ways, we're still a bunch of prudes. We really, truly are, especially when it comes to our vices, certainly, you know, when it comes to things like marijuana and other controlled substances, but even booze, even liquor, you know, don't forget it's been what has it even been a year since we could drink on Sunday or buy liquor on Sunday in this state? It started in July last year. Okay. So it's been just over a year, one year in the year 2018. It's only been one year that you could buy liquor on Sunday in the state of Minnesota. That's, that's how prudish we have remained into you know the the second quarter of the 21st century here in this country here in this state and it continues closing argument my name is Walter Hudson Twin Cities News Talk AM 1130 103.5 FM from the Star Tribune the city of Minneapolis charter says that Molly Broder can't allow her customers to sip hard liquor in her South Minneapolis eatery because it isn't located within a seven-acre area of commercially zoned businesses, so she can only serve beer and wine. That means no hard liquor. We should be able to give this option to our customers if we choose, said Broder. And in the current charter, we would not have the opportunity to even think about that for our restaurants. That could change in November. Over the next seven weeks, Broder and other restaurants will try to persuade Minneapolis voters to mark yes on city ballot question one. 
That would eliminate what they consider an outdated ordinance that puts neighborhood restaurants at a disadvantage in a market where craft cocktails are the rage. The outreach is just beginning, and customers for restaurants supporting the cause will soon begin to see vote yes on one Minneapolis slogans on the walls and coasters of, uh, while eating dinner and in the bill sleeve when they get the check. Those behind the campaign acknowledge a tough road ahead in getting through to voters on the proposed change in the little-known are off the little-known law in time for a heated midterm election focused on weightier issues. We've got a lot of people to contact, the Minneapolis Charter Commissioner Matt Perry said. Now, you know, the fact that this is even a thing they have to do stands as testament to, to how prudish our society remains. There was another story that, that uh, crossed my attention over the past few days involving Elon Musk, and the purveyor of uh, Tesla, the CEO, he smoked weed on a podcast, on Joe Rogan's podcast. And coincidentally, I think, I don't, I don't think there was a cause-effect relationship between these two events, but the stock of Tesla tumbled by 6% on Friday. And there were efforts to try to link these two things. The, the smoking of weed to the dropping of stock. And there were a number of hot takes on this along the lines of Elon Musk is so irresponsible. How could he possibly do this? What an irresponsible manager. What an irresponsible you know, fiduciary exercise on the part of his stockholders, his shareholders, to do, to do this, to publicly go out there and legally smoke. Because this was in, I believe, Colorado where he did this. Yeah, so he Col- didn't, Colorado or California. Yeah, he didn't break the law. You know, He did this legally. So this is the equivalent of you know having a being on a podcast. Hey, look, we have what the uh, the Minnesota beer cast here on this studio, and I I hate to break it to you, but they might be sipping a beer or two while they produce that. This is the equivalent of that. It's the legal consumption of a mind altering substance during a broadcast, and it's we're we're still at a point in society where if the CEO of a company does that, it there there's all these this whimpering and hand-wringing and, you know, woeful hot-taking and what have you in response to it. Calm down, everybody. It's okay. Just take a deep breath. We're going to be all right. We don't need to be that concerned about the things people do to unwind, even if they do so in the context of a podcast. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Thanks for listening to 